This Coin Week podcast is brought to you by PCGS. Visit PCGS for on-site grading at the Long Beach Expo on September 7th and 8th. Long Beach Expo is the West Coast's premier coin and collectible show featuring hundreds of nationally known dealers, auctions, and world-class educational attractions. Visit longbeachexpo.com to learn more. Over the course of his career, Coin Age magazine editor Ed Ryder's wit and passion for coins guided generations of numismatists in their enjoyment of the hobby. His tutelage of upcoming writers helped launch the careers of Scott Travers, Joshua McMahon Hernandez, and others. Last week, after a lengthy illness, Ed Ryder died. He worked until his very last days. In this episode of the Coin Week podcast, Ed's friend, coin dealer, and writer, Scott Travers, joins me to talk about his thoughts on the passing of our friend. Hi, Scott. Thank you for joining me. Uh, you know, I wish uh, we could mark an occasion a little less somber uh, to have you on for your first guest appearance in the Coin Week podcast. Well, it's uh, good to be with you, Charles, and I'm sure that Ed Ryder is with us in spirit and uh, would certainly be uh, looking down at us now and uh, approving of our review of his life and uh, our celebration of all of his many achievements and accomplishments. You know, it, it might seem unthinkable to us that a coin collector sitting out there somewhere would not know who Ed Ryder was, but, you know, for those listeners who maybe didn't grow up in the uh, New York media market or enjoyed coin collecting uh, uh, magazines, um, uh, who who was Ed Ryder, and uh, what will define his legacy in, in American numismatics? Well, Ed Ryder was probably best known as the numismatics columnist for the New York Times, uh, a position that he held for uh, close to 10 years. Uh, he started in July of 1979, uh, he concluded and, and retired from that position in January of 1989. And during that period of time, he rose to national, maybe even international stature and influence. Uh, everyone and anyone uh, who wanted to know anything about coins and precious metals and paper money uh, religiously read the arts and leisure section of the New York Times every single week and looked forward to not only Ed's opining on various issues and criticizing the U.S. Mint, something he loved to do and, and uh, then and, and loved to do even up until a couple of weeks ago uh, before uh, uh, he, uh, he passed away. Uh, but uh, he also had... Uh, various uh, bulletin board type announcements of upcoming events. And uh, I read one of those bulletin board announcements uh, as a young numismatist of an upcoming event in the New York area and attended my first New York area coin convention based on uh, Ed having uh, uh, an announcement uh, in the New York Times for uh, participation of, of young numismatists. 
So uh, it was really a, a legendary column, something which uh, has not been duplicated by any publication or any person to date. And that really put Ed on the map because people all over the world were reading what he had to say. And uh, I would say that uh, my uh, my friendship with Ed on a on a professional basis was uh, really became cemented as a result of of his giving the most extraordinary review of my first book, The Coin Collector's Survival Manual, first published in 1984. And he wrote about it in uh, in a column in the New York Times that got tremendous exposure. He used photographs uh, from the book, talked about uh, every aspect of the book, and gave this thing such a great send-off that we sold out our first printing in just a couple of weeks. He even wrote about the promotional conference that we were having in Detroit, and as a result of that, we had uh, standing room only in the conference room. We had 14 persons, uh, leading experts, addressing the coin collector's survival conference, and uh, I can't think of uh, anyone or, or uh, any entity that's created any uh, great uh, legendary memories as Ed's uh, created with his New York Times column. I think it's worth noting, if people don't know this about you, but you, you were essentially a, a, a prodigy young numismatist. Um, you had national recognition very early in your career uh, with a degree of success that, that kind of reminds me of uh, that of Q. David Bowers. Um, and uh, I remember uh, reading your Coin World writing in the, uh, in the 1980s, and it was, it was very sharp. Surprise, that was uh, a lot of fun, actually, writing those investigative stories for Coin World. And in fact, um, I don't know if you, you picked up on that also, but I wrote some really, uh, some really fun and, and cool investigative stories for Coin Age magazine back in the 1970s. And by the time the uh, the 1980s rolled around, uh, I became a contributing editor for Coin Age uh, while I was still in college. Uh, in fact, uh, back uh, when I was 15 years old, I was already operating uh, my coin business, and the American Numismatic Association, the ANA, gave me a scholarship to Colorado College for the summer seminar, and I took the course on coin grading and uh, found it tremendously beneficial, especially the uh, camaraderie with uh, other young numismatists, and uh, the uh, the great uh, professional working relationships I was able to forge at that time as a 15-year-old with, with dealers. Uh, and, uh, and then the next year, by the time I was 16 years old, uh, the ANA, when Florence Shook was the uh, coach for the Young Numismatist, named me the Outstanding Young Numismatist of the Year and presented me with a collection of gold coins ranging in denomination from the U.S. Quarter Eagle to the U.S. Double Eagle. And the Double Eagle that was given to me, the $20 gold piece, was a scarce-state coin, scarce-state mint mark, lovely proof-like example. And I still have that set of gold-type coins encased in a capital plastics acrylic sandwich-type holder. I still have that set today. And uh, it's a lovely memento of my being a young numismatist. 
And right after receiving that award from the ANA, uh, I found myself in uh, 1978, uh, shortly after I turned 17, as a guest on Good Morning America and interviewed by then-host David Hartman. And uh, then I went on to become an undergraduate at Brandeis University where uh, I was signed up to write my first book, The Coin Collector's Survival Manual, uh, and uh, the contract was given to me by a, uh, an imprint of Simon & Schuster, and uh, the book was published a year, uh, uh, no, not quite a year, even a year after I graduated, and uh, met with uh, tremendous success, uh, mainly as a result uh, of not only the book itself being popular, but from the extraordinary send-off we were talking about before, given to me by Ed Ryder, in the New York Times. And uh, the book did so well that Simon & Schuster, within a month of my, uh, of my uh, selling out the first printing, quickly gave me a contract to write another book. And uh, that other book was uh, my second book, Rare Coin Investment Strategy. And once again, Ed Ryder gave that tremendous play in the New York Times. Uh, it got like an entire... New York Times tabloid post uh, in 1986, and it caught the attention of the White House. Uh, it did an interview with me. Uh, he recommended me to some people that called him from Newsweek. They did an interview with me. I spoke very glowingly of the various programs that the Min had that was beneficial to young numismatists, and uh, as a result of, of Ed's tremendous influence, uh, in the New York Times and, and getting the attention of, of President, uh, then President Reagan and, uh, and James Baker III, I was invited to attend the first strike ceremony, uh, for the, uh, American Eagle Gold Coin at West. And I attended and, uh, stood up at the podium with James Baker III and together we struck one of the very first American Eagles. And uh, the coin that I struck was uh, one of the very first examples to go into private hands, my hands. And I still have the coin. PCGS put it in a holder. It's the only coin, I believe, that's in a PCGS holder that has the name of the person on the holder striking the coin, me. But it was Ed Ryder that made all of that possible by the tremendous influence that he had. The White House was reading his column. Uh, President Reagan, I understand personally read that column. James Baker III read the column. So, I mean, Ed's influence is just legendary in this industry and his ability to promote something or say something positive about uh, a product, a person, a book, uh, a marketing program, uh, had the ability back then during that period of time to really launch something or uh, to put the damper on something that uh, Ed thought was not beneficial to the public. Well, you know, you, you bring up the confluence of events uh, with Ed Ryder reading your book, uh, liking it, and putting you on the map through his column. I think 1986 or 87, when that book came out, is when I, uh, I picked up my first Red book. It was um, a gift from my grandmother, Ruth. And now that... Uh, you know, I've slightly uh, revealed my age. I can say that, you know, at that time, as mad as I was about coins, I, I never anticipated that the day would come 
where I would be uh, uh, become a nationally known coin collector or, or someone whose you know, voice mattered to the coin hobby or industry. You know, I certainly never imagined that I would meet famous numismatists, uh, hold important coins, uh, attend national or international shows, you know. I certainly didn't expect to meet the editors or writers or publishers of, uh, you know, my favorite books and magazines. So I can imagine the thrill you had in meeting him. And, uh, and I think it also speaks to another one of Ed's passions, you know, that was uh, to improve the quality and visibility of good writing about coins. And for years, uh, he served as the executive director of the Numismatic Literary Guild, which, uh, you know, is an organization and, you know, maybe one of the only organizations we have that is devoted to the authors of Numismatic material. Um, I mean, we also have the Numismatic Bibliomania Society, but the focus on the NLG is, uh, it's different. The NLG is unique in, the, in that we are so vocal and we have uh, an annual bash and what has become a formal dinner and a wonderful buffet and a fabulous award ceremony that's uh, so well sponsored each year that NLG is is certainly visible as the uh, as the organization that's the uh, the spokesman of of good writing in uh, throughout the world and uh, it's been my honor to work with Ed uh, for many years now uh, as the MC of the annual award ceremony and coordinating all these dozens, in some cases, hundreds of award plaques that we give out every year. It's, it's not an easy task. And Ed, uh, you know, he, he certainly made sure that, that all of this came together and that uh, all of the uh, judges got everything that they, they needed to get. And uh, he... Uh, consulted with everyone every year and uh, even when he wasn't able to be there the last few years when he wasn't able to be there physically he made sure that behind the scenes uh, everything uh, uh, was uh, proceeding with the great fluidity that it had in previous years you know Ed was a bit of a prankster too you know I think I think a lot of people who knew him well knew he was very quick with his words and practical jokes he loved practical jokes. <laughs> he loved uh, making fun of people. He was great at impersonations. He impersonated everyone from Bernard Anderson to Cliff Mishler uh, to, to Harry Foreman, anyone that uh, he could, uh, you know, get a grasp of, of their personality, of uh, how they would feel. Margot Russell, he would... Uh, speak in a very high-pitched voice, and, and he would impersonate her. Uh, but his sense of humor was legendary. He liked puns. He liked plays on words. Uh, he was extraordinary with, uh, with titles and, uh, and with headlines. And In fact, uh, uh, he won the four first-place awards from the New Jersey Press Association for best headline writing because he loved this thing with, with wordplay and with puns. In fact, he and I, you know, for so many years, we, we spoke on the phone every day, sometimes two or three or four times a day. We spoke so often to each other that uh, John Albanese, the founder of NGC, who is now the uh, uh, 
who's also the founder of CAC, Certified Acceptance Corporation, and is at CAC, seeing to its successful operation. He tells me that that he thinks that Ed's uh, wordplay and puns have been contagious to me. And John Albanese has made many comments to me, and I come back to him with a wordplay or a pun, and he says it sounds just like it's Ed Ryder talking. Uh, you'll see in there that uh, there was, uh, you know, I gave Ed back his his own sense of humor. Uh, he was uh, it was the last time that I chatted with him, and he was in the hospital, and uh, you know, I heard the nurse in the background, and I heard him. I heard him grunting, and he was telling me that uh, the nurse was uh, putting a bandage on his uh, on his right leg. Both of his legs were were bandaged, and uh, she was tugging at that right leg, and, and it was he found it to be very very painful. And uh, he was telling me that the nurse uh, was was just telling him that uh, his kidneys weren't working very well, and his liver hadn't been working very well, and. Uh, and uh, you know, using his own style of humor with him, uh, you know, I, I, I said I try to make light of it. And I said, well, Ed, the nurse, uh, the nurse just might be joking about all of this, and maybe a speedy recovery is on the horizon. And he sounded very curious about it, and he asked me, well, did you talk to her? How do how do you know this? And I said, Ed, because she's pulling your leg, and he just broke out in the most uproarious laughter. He couldn't control the laughter, and uh, and that was the last time that we talked. Well, you know, I, I remember the first time I ran into Ed Ryder. It might have been the uh, 2014 A&A, the, uh, the famous Gold Kennedy World's Fair of Money, as it should forever be known. And he was riding around in his cart, and he stopped me, and he says to me, uh, he says, Hi, are you Charles Morgan? And, and now, uh, this is a very good example, folks, of uh, what's called paying your dues. So I said, yeah. And he goes, well, I'd like you to meet my friend, Huber Walker. He was probably <laughs> holding up. He had a walker that he put on the back of the scooter. And uh, he always made this joke with with the the walker that he used to carry felt a little bit awkward with the walker so he made a joke about it and he used to he collected walking liberty half dollars so he would go up to a dealer sometimes sometimes even randomly and he asked he would hold up one of his mint state 65 ngc or pcgs graded walking liberty halves and he would flash it at the dealer and he would ask do you buy walkers and the dealer would see the, the, the Mint State 65 PCGS or NGC graded Walking Liberty half and, and shake his head knowing, yes, yes, of course. And then Ed would take the walker that he was walking with, the walking assistant, and hold it up. And he would say, I hate this thing. You should buy it from me. So, I mean, that, that's – but he, he wore that one out. He did that to multiple dealers. So much so that there were several dealers that said, well, you just said that to me yesterday. Can you find another line? You know, well, in my instance, I, I think up to that time, I never brought Hubert, uh, my oftentimes co-writer, uh, to a show. And that, that, and maybe people thought that, you know, he was some sort of fiction or, you know, a MacGuffin or something I created. 
And so, you know, the idea that uh, Ed would pull my leg about that, you know, uh, but, you know, but what Ed didn't figure at the time, uh, not only had the numismatic community never seen Hubert at that point, uh, but I hadn't even seen him in about 10 years. Uh, you know, we grew up, went to college together, but after that, we only communicated over the phone or email. We, you know, we lived a long way apart. So uh, I certainly uh, can't say that I would have, uh, with 100% uh, assurance, recognized him if he had walked up to me at the time in the show. But uh, he certainly wasn't a walker <laughs> that you would, <laughs> you would uh, carry around to make sure that you stayed upright. Um, so obviously Ed is going to be missed by, uh, you know, everybody who knew him. Um, but the uh, coin industry that he leaves is uh, a far different one than the one he entered into. He was never one to be, uh, to pick up on, uh, computer technologies or apps. You know, he, uh, he never had a, uh, a cell phone. And, uh, and so you could never text message him. You could never reach him on a cell phone. And he was actually very proud of that. Uh, one day I even asked him at a convention, well, Ed, how about if I buy you one of these disposable cell phones? And he grumbled. He said, I don't want those darn things. No way. And if you gave it to me, I'd just lose it or put it on the bottom of my cart here and forget about it. He did not like that. He did not like that at all. And uh, in fact, he made fun of people who were using apps and who were tweeting. He made fun of the term tweeting. He he called people who were tweeting. They were all twits to him. So he uh, he had some very strong opinions of that. He he didn't like modern music either. And he made fun of people that that liked modern music. He liked you know very specific music taste he had of music from the 1950s. So what was his opinion on the direction the uh, coin industry uh, took over the course of his career? Uh, he didn't understand why people didn't want to be living in an analog world and were converting everything into a digital world. Because to the very last day, he was the senior editor of Coin Age magazine, and this is really it's that is a, it's an analog publication, and it's moving in the direction of digital. But he was living in an analog world, and uh, when we were making some strides uh, toward taking the Numismatic Literary Guild uh, into the digital world and uh, moving away from an analog newsletter. He did everything he could to resist that. Uh, he didn't like uh, that, that people were, were buying coins over eBay. The fact that the, this was a, uh, a computer-based uh, auction online facilitator, he, he had a real problem with that. And he encouraged me and, and all of my books to be as critical of eBay as possible he read through some of the books, and I remember his reading through some of the proofs before the book came out, before uh, the latest edition of the Coin Collector Survival Manual came out, and he saw certain things that I wrote in there on, on eBay that were critical, and he encouraged me to beef that up and make it even more critical. However you could criticize anything that, that related to the digital world, he criticized it. 
And uh, in, in retrospect, he may have actually been right. I mean, uh, who's to say that uh, our world of today, where we have uh, so many things that are that are online and so many things that are digitized, is really all that much better than an analog world? Because there there are many specific, a uh, lot of advantages to an analog world. I know we're moving to uh, to digital readers. Frankly, I happen to like an analog book to to sit in a chair and, and thumb through physical pages of a book. So yeah, there might be something to that thinking. Well, you know, sometimes I, I feel that you have to keep a, a balanced perspective. You know, I got John Highfield's latest magnum opus on silver dollars in digital form, which is considerably lighter than the analog two-volume book. But, you know, I, I think the thing is, you know, we, we live in the time we live in. And as things change... Sometimes, you know, we, we, we might miss the way things used to be or, or the way we imagined that they used to be. But I think the coin industry, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you know, is a time full of possibility. And there was a lot of retail acreage across America where, you know, you could find coins, even, even nice coins. And I think it's become more and more consolidated, you know, as digital age has matured and most of our numismatic auctions are conducted over the Internet and a good portion of the actual transactions of coins is probably handled online as well, I suppose. The Internet, you know, has changed the name of the game. And, and um, you know, and I'm sure this is the case with your own business as well. It's become more efficient. And the question is, in, in the marketplace that becomes more efficient, are you going to have more participants or are you going to have fewer participants? So this, this sense of, of greater efficiency of, of the playing field being leveled by grading services of the Numismatic Guarantee Corporation of America, NGC, the Professional Coin Grading Service, PCGS, having the seal of approval from the Certified Acceptance Corporation, CAC. Uh, all of this makes having a dealer, a dealer to assist people less and less relevant, or at least that's what the perception is to the consumer. Consumers more and more think that they can do things on their own and they can cut out the middleman or middle woman and they can just go out on their own and, and buy coins and not need a dealer. And that's, that perception is very important because you end up uh, in reality with, with fewer dealers. There are fewer dealers that are participating today. There are larger dealers, but there are fewer dealers. And, and with fewer dealers, we see fewer market participants. Fewer market participants, you see fewer people that that buy uh, digital as uh, as well as analog content. And around the world, there's an insatiable demand for all kinds of information. But in the coin world, uh, the demand for information is not growing at the same pace as we're seeing in other industries. And we can look just to our own American Numismatic Association to see that the ANA uh, is not growing by leaps and bounds in terms of its membership. doesn't have two or 300,000 members as we would hope or expect for the ANA to have. And certainly uh, as a member of the Advisory Council and as a former vice president of the ANA, I'm going to do everything in my power to try to grow that membership. Membership's around 25,000 members. That's really uh, according to what the ANA uh, claims it has as members. But even if that number is an accurate number, it's still not enough members. We need to we need a lot more people 
We need more apps. Uh, we need to partner with uh, various software companies so that we can uh, piggyback uh, apps in other industries that are offered, uh, offer publications that are readable, that are included with other software programs. We need more participants in the field. We need more dealers. And so, once again, that question, does efficiency help? Does, uh, does leveling the playing field help the consumer? Well, it might help an individual consumer in a transaction. It might not be all that helpful to the industry as a whole in, in growing the industry and creating greater and wider and deeper grassroots. I think that speaks to the role of editors, you know, publications, and the role of publications in general. When I approach uh, Coin Week, and, and I think Ed probably felt the same way about his, uh, his magazine. You know, a good editor's job is to uh, curate the information that's coming in and to present a version of the coin collecting hobby that will pull people in and appeal to their interests and show them what is cool about numismatics, you know, to reinforce that. And I also think that you want to convey at all times that this is an interesting field to be involved in, you know, with interesting people. Well, that's what Ed Ryder did. And uh, in his role as the senior editor of Coinage magazine and as the author of a very popular award-winning monthly column, My Two Cents Worth, that's what he did and that's what he communicated. But a very strong part of his message was, was pretty consistent in the last several years. He was very critical of the U.S. Mint. And uh, he believed very firmly that uh, the U.S. Mint was responsible for sucking uh, billions of dollars out of the coin trade and diverting these billions of dollars that could be used to purchase legitimate rarities and vintage coins and diverting that money into modern mint products that really uh, uh, should not have been worth much more than the precious metal content that they contained. And, and he, in many cases, uh, uh, was very vocal about this. He, he wrote about it on a constant basis, needling the mint very, very, uh, uh, very aggressively uh, and uh, pointing out various examples of uh, mint products that uh, were poor investments, went down in value, and in other cases, even where something may be a good investment, he chose then the, the proverbial other side of the coin. He criticized the design and said that the design was unattractive and people shouldn't be buying it because the coin is basically ugly. So he uh, he's probably one of the, the most vocal and uh, visible mint critics of, uh, of modern times. Which puts him among a long list of uh, notable numismatists uh, from way back in the early days of the ANA to uh, today and the uh, one and only Harvey Stack. There have been no shortage of mint critics over the years. Yes, and Ed, though, he was persistent and dogged with his criticisms. Well, Scott, I appreciate your sharing your thoughts about Ed. Um, certainly going to be missed. It uh, just goes to show uh, in this coin community of ours that people, you know, we, uh, we share a brotherhood and a sisterhood of friends, many uh, lifelong friends. And, and I know in knowing you that you will deeply miss your interactions with uh, Ed Ryder, uh, your dear friend and mentor. 
Well, Scott, I appreciate you sharing some thoughts about Ed. Uh, he's definitely going to be missed, and uh, uh, you know, it's uh, just shows that uh, in this uh, this community of, of coin people, we we pretty much have a, a brotherhood and a sisterhood of uh, colleagues and friends, and we share you know uh, years and years of experiences. And um, I'm glad you got to meet your idol. We are uh, we're going to miss uh, all aspects of uh, Ed Ryder. We're going to miss his uh, his great sense of humor and his puns and his wordplay. We're going to miss his uh, his unique and uh, very very specific writing style. We're going to miss his his very strong leadership. Uh, we're going to miss his criticism of the U.S. Mint. Uh, we're going to miss uh, the wonderful writing he did for uh, the skits for the Numismatic Literary Guild bashes and the performances and the songs and the impersonations. And so at the end of the day, Ed Ryder leaves a tremendous void in our hobby and our industry, and uh, his words will live on in perpetuity uh, through his great writings and his archived public pronouncements. Well, thanks very much for that, and uh, please uh, share our regards with this family. Absolutely. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends. And remember, you can download all 76 episodes of the Coin Week podcast for free on the iTunes Store. For Coin Week, I'm editor Charles Morgan. Until next time, happy collecting.